You're listening to Amphibicast. Hey, what's up, everyone? Hope everyone's doing well out there. Uh, I don't have a guest lined up for tonight, so what I thought I would do would be to share some personal notes about microfauna from personal experience. These are things that I've learned um, over time and some of the things that I thought might be interesting really just to share. Again, I, I don't purport to be an expert on microfauna, but after doing this for you know quite a few years, I thought it might be worthwhile just to share some of my experiences and to kind of maybe get into some things that I may have debated with other people in terms of whether they were true or not. So here goes. Um, like I said, I'm going to discuss from my own experience what we now call cleanup crews. And although at the time when I discovered them, there really was no mention of that term other than possibly in a book, which I found out was written in 2003 called Giant Centipedes, The Enthusiast Handbook. Now, from what I understand, this was the first mention of microfauna used as a cleanup crew. Originally, the term referred to reef aquarium cleanup crews that cleaned up algae and unwanted things um, in a saltwater aquarium, but now, for all intents and purposes, it refers to the intentional incorporation of microfauna that generally includes springtails and, in some cases, isopods or other small invertebrates that essentially act as a cleanup crew. So, For those of you who aren't familiar with the term as it applies to amphibians, if some of you are more familiar with, um, you know, a a reef environment or something like that, the premise is fairly straightforward. In certain types of captive setups, such as vivariums with high ambient humidity or moist substrate, things can go south quickly if you don't have a plan. (laughs) And you can get problematic issues like mold or a buildup of dead prey items like, for example, fruit flies. You can get pests such as forward flies, and they're not pleasant by any means. I worked, actually worked with uh, sewage for 15 years, and I dealt with my share of forward flies. They're really unpleasant, they're gross, and you don't want them. So you want something that's effectively going to outcompete those in the vivarium so that you don't have to deal with them. And there's a whole other host of problems, which, you know, I don't want to get into right now. But for a long time, it was my understanding that the only way to manage these situations, these unwanted things in the vivarium, was to completely change out the substrate. Well, that led to a dilemma. And I gave it some thought, and I thought to myself, well, am I serving my animals' needs properly by essentially starting their enclosures out from scratch every week or two or month, and... How can I make changing the substrate more cost-effective without putting my animals at risk? So this is what I kind of came to learn, uh, excuse me, what I came to learn by accident. Midway through my career as a keeper, I began experimenting with different subjects. This was around uh, 2004, 2005, and my wife and I were living in a small basement apartment at the time. My collection was relatively small at the time, and I had a pair of fire salamanders, an adult male axolotl, golden albino morph, a pair of white tree frogs, and, and a pixie. I also had my male California king snake, who's actually still around today and pushing, uh, he's pushing about 18 years old. And I had a tego at the time, but more on him in another episode. Since we were on a budget at the time, I wanted to investigate other substrates. The cocoa-based products were getting to be a little bit pricey, And this was in the days before Amazon and online shopping took off. So you really couldn't 
bargain shop compare, you know, um, the big box stores essentially cornered the market. And um, they were making a killing selling a single brick of cocoa core, something you could buy at an, at an expo or, say, on Amazon for much less than what you would pay in a big box store. So I figured I'd experiment outside the box, no pun intended to speak, and there was an agricultural supply about a town over, and they sold cypress mulch in bags that would cover maybe three square foot, or excuse me, three square feet, and I'd read good things about them. I was very much into blood pythons at the time, and I'd heard about a lot of keepers had had success because it maintained humidity and whatnot. I, I have since changed my attitudes towards blood python keeping, but that's outside the scope of this discussion. So in any in any event, um, the cypress mulch was great. It didn't grow mold. It held moisture well, and the chunks of mulch were actually too large for most of my animals to ingest because obviously. When picking a substrate, we want to take into consideration issues like impaction and, you know, could the animal potentially have digestive issues should it ingest some of the, some of the substrate? And that's always been a big concern of mine. So, like I said, it, it worked very, very well. I purchased a single bag and I tested it on a small scale first. Once I felt it was safe enough to go and be my go-to substrate, I was very, very happy with it. It was effective, it was cheap, and I could change it often without breaking the bank. In fact, I was able to use the discarded substrate as mulch in the yard that we shared with, uh, you know, the, the other uh, people who live in that, lived in the, uh, the house with us. Now, at the time, I worked late nights, and I would usually get home uh, between midnight and 1 a.m., if not later. And before going to bed, I would usually make my rounds and check on everything. I saw some individuals out more during the daylight, uh, excuse me, out more out during light the lights out period and this was a great time to check on things that I might not have noticed during the day and obviously I was gone all day so I would check on my fire salamanders I would check on my pixies and one night I noticed that there were these little tiny white bugs and they were swarming on a piece of salamander poop now since I associated little bugs with with big problems I freaked out you know I thought to myself oh well what are these things going to do am I going to find you know, my pixie swarmed by these things tomorrow morning. You know, what, what, what are they? Are they parasites? Is it something that came from uh, something that one of the animals passed? Is it going to spread? I was very, very unsure in terms of what this was and what to do. Now, it was late. It was about one at night, like I said. So I, I figured out, you know, tossing substrate and starting to hose out tanks at one o'clock in the morning when it was about 30 degrees out that night probably wasn't a good idea. So I left him be. And I checked it out the next day when I happened to be off. And I saw them again, but they weren't swarming my animals the way I, you know, fantasized that they would have been. And oddly enough, they had actually consumed some of the poo. So I figured, all right, I'm, I'm going to let them be and I'm going to see what happens. Well, by and large, I noticed that my enclosure was actually getting cleaner. And ultimately, I was able to identify the, the intruders as native springtails. So I figured out, okay, well, they're harmless and they seem to be doing no harm to me and no harm to my animals. So I'm going to let this play out and monitor the situation and see how it goes. And another question that came up was, well, where do these things come from? So 
I consider two possibilities. They might have hitched a ride in on the cypress mulch. The, the bags were often damp when I bought them, and it's really no stretch to the imagination that some living thing managed to make its way in, you know, sort of piggyback its way in on the substrate. And the other possibility was that they were always in the apartment somewhere. It, it was a basement, and it was kind of dank, and it was kind of moist in the room where I kept my amphibians. So it stood to reason that, well, they might just be residents, and I never noticed them before. And they seem to be doing a pretty good job. So I did a little experiment. I actually transplanted them into my White's tree frog enclosure to see what would happen. I also kept them on cypress mulch. And at the time, I was keeping them more uh, more moist and less dry. Again, it was going back a ways. And um, I kept White's tree frogs on a side note in many different ways. Now I keep them on the whole drier, really more along the lines with what they would experience in many of their environments rather than keeping the substrate kind of sopping wet, which was a mistake on my part at the time. But in any event, they took off and they did the same thing. I found them, you know, eating the poo. I wasn't getting issues with any kind of mold, even though the cypress mulch was pretty much effective against mold itself. Every so often I would get little clumps of like, you know, white mold and whatnot, which is essentially the, you know, the, the, the fruiting part of the fungus, you know, mushrooms are technically, even though they sprout up in vivariums, the fungus is always there. But in any event, they did a good job of cleaning that up if it did happen at all. So like I said, I had them in my White's tree frog enclosure and I really had a very good experience. And I figured, you know what, I'm going to kind of incorporate this into my keeping and let it become, you know, let it become something that I'm going to incorporate into my regular, my regular routine. Now, one thing I didn't know at the time was how to culture these guys. So I would just transfer them from one enclosure to the next. It wasn't necessarily a good idea in hindsight because I wasn't maintaining effective quarantine between tanks. Whereas nowadays I would never transfer something from one vivarium to another out of an abundance of caution. I would think to myself, well, if one of these inhabitants does have a parasite or a pathogen or something like that, even though my my collection has been pretty much, you know, a closed system for a long time, I, I didn't want to take any ch- any t- any chances now. But at the time, I didn't really really have a grasp on that. Thankfully, I didn't transfer any pathogens uh, pathogens or at least anything that I would have seen. And as time went by, I came across some more information and uh, you know did some research. And experts and a lot of hobbyists seem to concur that my new guests were beneficial. So as I said, I let them be. And over time, my collection actually dwindled. And I kind of got down to very few animals. And I didn't return to the hobby full force until about 2016. However, by this time, I no longer had access to my original cleanup army. Like I said, I had no knowledge in terms of how to culture them until I sort of ventured back into the hobby. But lo and behold, I found that other people not only had the same idea as I had, but they were smart enough to capitalize off of it by doing some research, isolating certain species and marketing them for sale. Great. Okay. So I ordered a few cultures from a vendor and I picked up some tips on how to culture them myself. Obviously, raising them on charcoal seemed to be the norm if you wanted to take a culture and then let it grow out, let it boom, so to speak, and then transfer it to another enclosure or feed some of it off if you had a, um, you know, a particular animal that wasn't doing very well. You, you had, uh, you know, a froglet that was being finicky or, uh, you know, a, a pamilio that might not be taking fruit flies but would take the springtails. In any event, it was, it was a, a, a good thing all around. So I 
got those few cultures and I divided them out countless times into probably well over 15 enclosures. Admittedly, the native species that I kept out actually did a better job, but I couldn't replicate that again. So I was sort of reliant on the species that we have available. Um, I think there's, there's, I think it's Columbola is the genus name. Or the family. I'm, I don't quite remember the, text, the uh, taxonomy, so you're going to have to forgive me for that. But the um, I think it's the temperate whites is the way they're marketed now. And they've done very, very well for me. Obviously not as good as the original natives that I had, which were also, for some reason, they were much larger. But it, it, it worked. And again, it was something that I wanted to incorporate into my vivariums for the sake of my animals, but also for the sake of you know, maintaining a, an enclosure that not only looked good, it was planted, it looked great, but it wasn't being overwhelmed by things that I didn't want, like forward flies and fungus and, and things like that. I mean, don't get me wrong, I still get, you know, mold and fungus outbreaks. In fact, I'm dealing with one in one vivarium now, and I'm really just going to kind of let it, you know, I didn't let it cycle enough before I put some frogs in there. So uh, it's going to have to kind of continue with the cycling process with the mold. And I've done this enough times, it, it'll, it'll, It'll disperse. It'll go away. I mean, regardless, it's 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 in the room. So even if I scrape the whole enclosure out, it could very well come back. So that I'm just going to let play out. Um, but the more I focused on dart frogs, uh, the more I found out how microfauna are essentially indispensable. Not only do they clean up the vivarium, but they're a more con- they are excuse me a convenient supplemental feeder, especially for froglets. Like I said a few minutes ago. Uh, about two years ago, I also incorporated some dwarf white isopods into one of my tink enclosures. I, again, I don't recall the scientific name, and honestly, I would love it if someone who was an isopod specialist or was, um, you know, really familiar with them, you know, if you want to come on the show, e- email me at fibicast at gmail.com. I'd be more than happy to talk with you. So I noticed that, as a side note, the introduction of isopods became a topic of debate, uh, excuse me, of debate, but not in the place that I actually expected it to be. I'd heard different opinions, and I was finally able to get my hands on some reliable information. It was a book called Pillbugs and Isopods, and the author's name is, and I really hope I pronounce this correctly, uh, it's Oren McMonagle, and the book went through all aspects of keeping isopods as standalone pets, as cleanup crew members, and as feeders. I recommend the book if you can get a hold of it. I think I bought it on Amazon for maybe $20, but very good. Um, natural history, captive husbandry, scientific names, pretty much it's it's a very, very reliable guide. And I feel like it was really, really um, a substantial part in my continuing education when I really wanted to address my attitudes towards microfauna in addition to keeping them. So anyway, to get back to the story... Um, I talked to a few vendors at expos and everyone sort of kind of, you know, agreed that the dwarf whites were the way to go. My Azurias were large enough to pick them off and any extras, you know, I, I figured they would either eat off as food and, you know, I'd keep an eye on it and monitor it. So essentially I didn't really have any problems, but there was one thing that bothered me. Um, in addition to keeping frogs, I'm also a, a very avid invert keeper. Frogs are my passion, but Every now and then someone needs a break from that passion. So I kind of got into inverts, specifically tarantulas, as the hobby that gets my mind off of my hobby. It's hard to explain, but I know that there's a lot of people who keep dart frogs and tarantulas. I'm sure you'll understand what I'm saying. 
the amount of obsessing that I do over my frog room kind of pales into comparison when it comes to the tarantulas. So after getting all worked up about a mold outbreak or, uh, you know, an animal that might not be visible enough or something like that, I can always say, oh, that's it. All right, I'm going to go hang out with the spiders now and just sort of relax. But I'd heard negative things about isopods from tarantula keepers. And a lot of them said that, well, the isopods essentially exploded in population. And one day a they found that a, a tarantula, and in some cases a scorpion, uh, was molting. And while it was molting, apparently they claimed that the isopods had swarmed the animal and basically just devoured it. Um, you know, just a complete flash mob of isopods covering a tarantula, and it was essentially consumed by the next day. And I thought to myself, this this can't be true. This this has to be this has to be a myth. This has to be something I've kept microfauna. I've kept isopods in my azurius tank for a couple of months and you know they're on the ground they're you know not a, that defensive of a species so i felt like if they were going to get swarmed by us by isopods you know it, it would have happened by now so it didn't happen with my frogs but um and also as just as an aside i don't keep any microfauna in my tarantula enclosures but again that's not really the focus of this podcast because obviously we're dealing with amphibians but um I don't keep I don't keep them in my tea enclosures. Well, one day my my curiosity tempted me, and uh, my oldest daughter had begun collecting native isopods, and I think they were Porcelio scabber. I'm not a hundred percent. Again, I, I'm not great with the taxonomy, but I think that the P scabber was what they were, since they are sort of cosmopolitan in distri- in distribution. I'm in Northeast North America here. It was really the closest uh, the closest species that I could find in my field guide by that I just mentioned before. So as I understand it, these are probably <laughs> probably one of the worst species for vivarium. And uh, a lot of people on forums and whatnot had kind of concurred that they're very, very large and they can be kind of aggressive. They're, they reproduce very, very quickly and generally not a good idea. So I figured, okay, well, if I'm going to kind of test this hypothesis here that you know, isopods will sort of explode in numbers and then overwhelm any other living thing in their quest for a protein. Well, let's let's see what happens. So, um, we let them establish themselves in an amac box. It's if you're not familiar with it, you can get them at like the container store. It, it was like a little eight by four inch acrylic box with a lid on it. Uh, made a couple of ventilation holes, and it was a, a low and wide box. I put some substrate in with some sphagnum moss. Uh, a few rotted sticks, some leaf litter, and a small dish. I wanted to see for myself what would happen if I recreated the conditions that I had heard led to such a, a grave end for its inhabitants. Uh, obviously, I wasn't going to put anything alive in there, but I, I wanted to see what would happen. So I let the adults reproduce, and after uh, maybe two months, they, they, they boomed. I had juveniles, or excuse me, I had... Um, babies, I guess you could call them, in the enclosure after maybe about a week. So I'm assuming that that, you know, was ready to happen regardless of me keeping them captive. And right now I'm like, eh, maybe my second or third, um, I guess, what would you call it? A clutch, maybe. Um, so I, I wanted to, at first to see what their food preferences would be. So I added a few things. I added carrots, I added rotten wood, I added calcium powder, dandelion greens, and 
a couple of other odds and ends. Usually it was might have been bark or some other type of rotted wood. I wanted to see what their food preference was. Well, since they're crustaceans, they obviously went nuts for the calcium powder. That that I kind of figured was going to happen, and that went first. They liked the carrot, and they also liked the wood, but it would also kind of it, it would vary. So sometimes they would be all over the wood or all over the leaf litter, and other times they would just knock down a slice of carrot in the course of an hour, whereas other times they would ignore it. I needed to know if they craved animal material, protein, etc., as much as I had heard, and obviously. This <laughs> this wasn't the most scientific study on my part. I had no control group, but what I did have was a hungry of army isopods in a small enclosure. And one day I took the leg of a dubia roach that I'd fed to um, one of my animals, and I left it there. And I said, "Okay, well let's let's see what it ha- let's see what happens." This is obviously the closest thing to a molting invertebrate that I could find. So I put that in, and by maybe yeah, the end of the next day, it was gone. But it wasn't. You know, I checked on it a few times over that day and that evening, and it wasn't gone in 60 seconds like I originally thought it would would have been. Now, on the forums, I'd had discussions and differences of opinion with people regarding this subject, and I'd spoke to other hobbyists who kept dart frogs and inverts, and none of us invert capers could really figure out why everyone had this fear of isopods. Um, we'd all discuss it and we'd, you know, we'd never lost eggs or frogs to a marauding army of isopods. And I'm sure that there's a lot of factors that went into that. You know, they would have preyed on the juveniles, that the species that we were keeping was probably appropriate for that environment. Isopods have different, um, you know, different reproductive rates. Some will establish very, very quickly and some will establish very, very slowly. Okay. So I thought, let, let me let me test this out. Let me see. I've already proven that they will eat insect matter, but let me see if they will take something like an, an infertile egg. So I have um, a trio of uh, Epipetobates anthonii, and they're notorious for having like 50-50. They'll, they'll have a bunch of dud clutches, and they'll have a bunch of fertile clutches. So I, I found kind of a dud clutch, and I picked a few eggs out, and I laid them in the dish inside the enclosure just to see what happens. Well... I went upstairs for about maybe 15 minutes, and when I looked looked again when I came down, the eggs were gone. And it wasn't even the adult isopods, it was the juveniles. And they were initially all over the carrot, and they switched gears and made straight for those eggs. And they essentially did what I never believed they would. So, what did I learn from this? Well, admittedly... I am not an expert on isopods, nor do I profess to be, but the experiment did show me that under the right conditions and with the right species, an aggressive feeding response is possible, and it may be a cause of concern. I'm not discouraged from keeping isopods per se, and I know me, by no means criticize anyone who does. I love isopods. I have seen a lot of different species, and it'll be intriguing to see how the isopod hobby pans out over the next 10 years, because I have a feeling it's probably going to be up there. And in any event, I I think that, you know, what did I learn from this experience? Well, obviously in everyday life, if we walk around with with our eyes closed and a closed mind, our attitude is never going to change and you're never going to end up going in the direction that you're always going to want to go. If you're doing the same thing forever and you're not getting anywhere, that is not the right thing. So I like to look at my successes and failures as teachable moments. However, One of the things that I also wanted to get into was, despite having this one experiment here and kind of getting really, really involved with with, uh, microfauna, 
they're not necessarily essential. And I feel like the more attention the concept of gotten has gotten, um, the more I feel like younger keepers and new people, new, new people who are new into the hobby kind of feel that this is essential. I have to have a cleanup, a cleanup crew. And that's not necessarily the case. Keeping a naturalistic vivarium is less intensive when you have microfauna, especially if you have a large collection. I like to think I do, but there are people whose collections kind of blow me away. Um, but imagine being a new keeper and thinking about a species that you would like to keep and you're boning up on its husbandry, you're figuring out what its natural history is, you're thinking about, well, you know, what do I need to house it correctly? What's its diet going to be like? And then all of a sudden you think to yourself, oh, I have to get a handle on microfauna before I can do any of this stuff. And then it kind of puts you in an awkward position where you're really, really worried about meeting the needs of the microfauna and trying to marry that with the captive care of the amphibian that you're looking to take care of, it can be kind of daunting. So obviously I'm not trying to discourage anyone from doing it. And I, I applaud the people, especially new beginners who get into it and, and do that, but it's not necessarily essential. And in fact, some places it's not even going to be practical or effective. Some of the drier species, such as waxy monkeys or white tree frogs, they don't need the ambient humidity and the moisture to the extent that say, you know, a uh, a tank does. And without moisture, springtails are not going to thrive in that enclosure. And many species of, obviously there are arid species of isopods, but many of the species of isopods that we use in the hobby to accomplish this purpose are not going to thrive with dry conditions. They're going to need a moist substrate. And as I said earlier, I've kept White's tree frogs in different ways over the years. I've kept my present setup on the drier side, whatever that means, but uh, I'm not choking them with the humidity and the saturated substrate because more and more and more as I kind of made uh, changes and tweaks to my captive husbandry, I realized that it's not benefiting them to keep them as moist as I would other species. So in that case, the springtails really weren't effective. And I found that they really didn't serve any practical purpose if they were dead. And <laughs> uh, nothing's going to serve a practical purpose if it dies. And I found that when I was introducing them and the enclosure was drying out, I might find them clinging to the water bowl and there really was no benefit to them just hanging out in the water bowl. So I sort of scrapped that idea. But I think that ultimately it's, it's, it's a personal choice. You will find that it will suit some situations better than others and there will be some situations where it's really not going to be practical. And you know, I've seen people use microfauna in, in some situations where it's, it, I'm kind of scratching my head and thinking, well, there's not enough waste in that environment due to dry conditions and whatnot for them to effectively clean. And it just seems like you have them in there not quite grasping what they're supposed to do. So Ultimately, you know, like I said, it's a personal choice and these were my experiences. So, you know, take this for what you will. This is something that I kind of picked up and have never perfected, but uh, I learned a few things. I learned that some of the, you know, the horror stories can happen. Um, the right species in the right environment can swarm. If you have eggs on the ground, could be an issue. Recreated it and it did. But obviously, that's not to discourage anyone. And again, for new keepers, 
you know, if it sounds like I'm discouraging you, don't be discouraged. Just take your time and realize that for many species, you don't necessarily need microfauna to accomplish an end. And sometimes you might not even need them at all. So as always, think about what benefits your animal. Are your actions going to benefit your animal or are they going to benefit you? And with that, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and I hope you look forward to the next one. 